Well, good morning, class. Um, I'm a bit rusty at the public speaking thing, and uh, to begin with, I had a bit of trouble calculating exactly how long uh, this morning's sermon should be. Bearing in mind that Matthew Henry's commentary on 1 Corinthians 15 runs to 13,000 words, I thought it might take something like an hour and a half. <laughs> but I'm just kidding, it's probably more like three. Um, when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a true story, and this really is a true story, I once heard about a lay preacher who was visiting a small country Methodist chapel where there was no permanent minister and where they always had guest speakers. Um, it was a freezing midwinter Sunday evening and the church was being heated by a small um, wood stove at the back of the hall. The preacher was welcomed at the door by one of the deacons and after some chit-chat he was asked if he'd like a cup of tea before, before he left after the service. And the preacher said yes, thanks, he certainly would. Uh, the deacon explained that their long-time, well-worn procedure was to put a kettle on the stove at the beginning of the sermon and when he began to whistle, the preacher would know when to wind up his talk. <laughs> he then turned to the visitor and with a mischievous look in his eyes said, but for some preachers, we only half fill the kettle. <laughs> um, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, it's about the resurrection. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at some of the incidents that have um, that followed Jesus' resurrection and the stories of how he met various people afterwards. We've seen him meeting some disciples along the road to Emmaus and then appearing to a group of disciples, and especially Thomas. And then after his ascension, he miraculously appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. But these are all historical events. Today, I want to look at the meaning of the resurrection its deep significance for us and the way in which it has a direct impact on us in the here and now and also for the future. We've heard this week an awful lot about death. We've had Anzac Day with its strong reminders of war and the horrors of war. We've seen thousands of lives lost in Nepal and I'm sure every one of us has experienced some pretty raw emotions in response to the executions in Indonesia. Throughout Australia, there's been an almost tangible sense and feeling of numbness and natural repulsion, I suppose. So what does God say to us about death and what's our response? Paul has written this longish letter to the Corinthians, a church he had founded, but which had obviously been sidetracked and distracted by the immorality around it. Corinth was a large Greek city, population of some 200,000 and hundreds of thousands more of slaves. It was well known for its immorality and its depravity. Nowadays we'd probably call it something like Sin City. Paul had stayed there for a couple of years and then had moved on. And then in AD 50 to 52, Oh, sorry, he was there between about AD 50 to 52 and then about two years later he writes what is in effect a corrective in which he says basically, come on guys, get your acts together. In the first 14 chapters he deals with several issues, conflict within the church, lifestyle issues, the roles, between, the, the roles believers have in the church, 
um, the earthly body of Christ as he referred to it, relationships between members and procedures in worship. And then he concludes with this very serious message that underpins everything that he just said. Now, Paul was a formidable debater and apologist for the Pharisees, the most rigid and legalistic of the elite groups in Jerusalem. I certainly wouldn't like to be up against him in a court of law. I can just imagine an opposing barrister um, groaning if he or she were to read the daily court list and find that they were up against Paul that day. So here was a guy steeped in the laws and traditions of the, uh, of the Jews to the point that he'd been considered, considered the man to eradicate the dangerous yet rapidly growing sect of Jesus, who Paul himself had been convinced was a criminal who had died at Jerusalem. But as we learned last week, Paul himself encountered the risen Lord and was totally changed, even to the point of his name changing. So he chucked a religious Yui and spent the rest of his time, the rest of his life, promoting the very thing that he'd been passionately trying to destroy. I can just imagine the evangelism subcommittee of the Disciples' Council back in Jerusalem when they heard about this. Once they got over the complete shock, um, I, I guess that they'd have put on a gospel album, something like, I don't know, the Merry Creek Gospel Explosion, and danced with joy at this spectacular catch that they, they got. In this chapter, Paul tackles the subject of the resurrection with typical passion and thoroughness, methodically and logically. So much so that after reading it myself a couple of times, I thought, well, I should just read maybe a modern paraphrase of this chapter and sit down again. But then if I did that, Peter probably wouldn't offer to buy me lunch ever again. Um, John Stott said that the resurrection was probably the most significant event in the New Testament. So let's take a closer look at what Paul actually says. He begins with a strong reminder about the truth of the resurrection. Verse 1, and you might like to look at this in your booklets. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In other words, it's all completely pointless. Unless you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. So he makes it crystal clear that nothing he had done or said, nothing the Corinthians did, nothing at all was valid, unless the resurrection of Jesus was actually true. Not just a good philosophical idea, and of course the Greeks were well used to good philosophical ideas. They say that there's a recognisable pattern or timeline for a good idea. It starts with a, a man or a woman with a message, turns into a movement, then a machine, and finally into a monument. But what Paul is saying is that this isn't like that, not at all. It's not just some kind of movement. The church is a real, living, breathing organism brought about because Jesus has actually risen from death. Not in the sense that he has some kind of ongoing or enduring influence 
and not just in a vague spiritual feel the force Jedi Knight kind of way, but he appeared in actual physical form to the disciples. Paul even presents a list of appearances in this chapter in a kind of whack. Take that. Look, this happened. Is it still hard to believe? I've spoken here before, uh, last year, about the years that I personally spent in a kind of spiritual hibernation. I think that's probably the best way to put it. And then how I started to pull out of that when my oldest daughter started to ask me questions about what I actually believed. So I personally started to re-examine the whole thing all over again. I started to look at the historical Jesus and quickly discovered that the documents the, the documents and the documentary evidence is quite substantial. I discovered that there's more historical proof about Jesus than of many of the other major characters and major events throughout history. There is, in fact, too much evidence just to ignore. But still, was he just a figure in history? Uh, maybe an inspirational leader, a lifestyle guru, perhaps? Is the whole miracle stroke resurrection thing just too implausible? A friend of mine came back from the movies one day complaining about the ziffers. Apparently there's a particular breed of human, normally they travel in packs of two and three, who invariably sit right behind you in the cinema. And whenever there's a plot hole in the movie, or something extremely unlikely happens, one of them will loudly say, as if. <laughs> These then are the ziffers. And there's plenty of people around who I think are probably going as if about the resurrection. They just can't believe it. But look, I, I was discussing this whole thing with a friend of mine who's done, who had also done an awful lot of academic research into what we now call the historical Jesus. And when it came to the resurrection, however unlikely it might seem to a human brain, he said that he believed something happened, something must have happened. This disparate collection of, what, what do we say, tradies, public servants, um, spiritual seekers, outright rogues, and if we add in Nicodemus, community leaders, suddenly became something quite different a dynamic, entrepreneurial, enthusiastic unto death, strategically thinking group of Jesus followers. Tom Wright once said that we can't read the stories of the resurrection without realising that this is the great turning point in history, when a bunch of frightened and muddled men and women stumble, despite themselves, on the truth that world history had turned its greatest corner, that a new power had been let loose and the door had been opened that no one could shut. These disciples very obviously changed. Something happened. They saw Jesus and then according to the historical record of the New Testament, he appeared to them alive. If there were any ziffers, their doubt soon evaporated. A few days ago when I was thinking through some of the issues raised by this chapter and its overall theme, I happened to walk past a local estate agent. 
And for some reason, they have a TV screen in the window that every so often advertises a nearby Pentecostal church. As I walked past, onto the screen popped the words, Jesus, our hope. So I thought, right, okay. I got home and feeling particularly religious that day. I put on a worshipy Christian album. And the first track that played was, There is a Hope So Sure. Whoa, it's a sign. <laughs> I should add that after, after I prepared this message, I, I went home and got off the train, and as I was walking home from the train, I passed an op shop, and in the window was some little cheap, gaudy little plastic thing that said, Hope. So they're right, okay. That just confirms all that. Let's take a, a look at this hope thing. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Or as John Piper put it, if Christ is not raised, then living for him, doing what he says, following his will, is a great delusion. We should be pitied like insane people who live by hallucinations. Now, Paul uses this word hope quite a lot in his letters. He used it a little earlier in 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 13, where he writes about faith, hope and love. He and other writers in the New Testament often use it in connection with the hope that we have in Jesus. And here he is saying that if our hope is limited to what happens only in our lifetime, everything else we preach about is just plain cray-cray. Let's, let's start with what hope isn't. In common usage, the word hope is usually used in connection with hoping for something. It's a fingers crossed wish list. I hope Santa brings me a new bike. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope Arsenal win the FA Cup later this month. <laughs> and of course, hope was elevated to new heights with Barack Obama and his election campaign based around his book the audacity of hope. I notice that politicians all over the world are now using hope as some sort of banner headline or slogan. In the middle of the British general election at the moment, one of the parties last weekend held a rally with the title, Hope Not Fear. In many ways, that kind of use implies a longing for something rather than a childlike wish, or even an opportunity for change, which is part of Barack Obama's message. And of course, given that tomorrow is Star Wars Day, a new hope, as in Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. But the hope we see here in this passage isn't really like any of that. The Greek word is elpizo, and the meaning is not that of a wish. To be precise, it means an expectation or something to be taken on trust, in full confidence. In other words, it's an assurance or a guarantee. I'd like to say it's a promise. And what are we promised? Eternal life, no less. We will no longer die, but will live on in the very presence of God. Now, I'm going to pause for a second because this could get complicated and I'll try to summarise it. Paul here is talking about eternal life. 
This is what happens to us Christians. It's a two-stage process. We die and our spirit goes on to live with Jesus. And then we await the bodily resurrection. Now that's quite a difficult concept for a lot of people. Um, and maybe if you've got questions, you can talk to Peter afterwards. <laughs> so again, just to be clear, what Paul is saying here is that because Jesus has already defeated death through his resurrection, we have an assurance that that is what will happen to us. By what happened on the cross and immediately after, when Jesus took our sins and he defeated death, he gave us an escape route a way to come back into a right and proper relationship with God and to end up with him forever. Now, it might be difficult for us still to get a handle on this promise because it all seems rather vague and um, maybe far offish. Maybe it doesn't relate to us. Maybe we don't understand it fully. So let me try and explain it this way. I have here... This is an English five-pound note. It's real. It's a real one. It's worth about, I don't know, about $8 at the moment. <laughs> I, on it, and it doesn't appear on Australian notes, which is why I'm using this one, but it used to, I'm sure. It says in very small letters, up in the corner, it says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of five pounds. Now, the system, at least in the simplistic mansplaining way I'm going to relate now, is that the Bank of England cannot issue this piece of paper unless they have tucked away in their vault somewhere the equivalent value in gold of £5. Now, the banking system theoretically works on the basis that banks have assets to match their paper money or other money that they might be lending out. But the authorities don't like the idea of people having to use wheelbarrows to trundle their money around, so that's why they issue these kind of uh, promissory notes or deposit slips, whatever. But the fact remains that somewhere I own a tiny bit of gold in the Bank of England because I've got this piece of paper. Now, I bet some of you are probably ahead of me here any, or already. Jesus has already paid for our redemption. He's already given us this escape route. He's already forgiven our sins. He's already destroyed the whole concept of death. So what we have right now is a deposit on something that actually exists. It exists. It's there. Like that gold in, in the vaults, it's already there. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, is the deposit of that. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 1, uh, from verse 20, which probably explains it a little better than I ever could. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And through him, the Amen is spoken to us by, to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us and he put, our, he, he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. One commentator I read put it this way, the death of Jesus proves his love for us. 
and his resurrection proves the power over every enemy of life. So there is someone you can count on, someone who is absolutely trustworthy, someone who will never let you down. So we have this promise. Okay, we get it, all right? What do we do about it? What does Paul suggest we do about it? Towards the end of this chapter, Paul loops back to something he said right at the beginning. It's fairly obvious that that Paul thinks the Corinthian Christians are, are easily swayed by what goes on around them. They're clearly slipping back into secular immorality and he's almost desperate to re-establish, for them to re-establish the basics of their faith. Verse 58 seems to sum up what we should be doing. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. When Martin Luther, the great Catholic pain in the neck, eventually faced his accusers and was forced to defend his beliefs, it's reported that he said something like, it's not absolutely sure what he said, but something like, here I stand, I can do no other. That was it. He had dug in. This was his immovable final position. He was standing firm. And we have to ask, Where do we stand this morning? Where do you stand this morning? Paul said we should stand firm on the issue of the resurrection because otherwise everything else just crumbles away. You know, when I was baptised and I became an official member of the church I grew up in, they gave me firstly a little booklet of rules because it was that kind of church. But they also gave me a little postcard on which had been typed a verse carefully chosen just just for me. And the verse which I've always taken quite to heart over the years, Ephesians 6.16, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you shall quench the fiery darts of the evil one. Now I guess, like many people here, I have my fair share of flaming arrows over the years. I've certainly been battered around a bit in a spiritual sense. Um, I've been depressed, distracted, I've certainly drifted off and I've come back. But I've also come to realise, perhaps now more than ever, that my faith has some kind of default setting about believing that, yes, something happened. Believing in the resurrection however implausible it might seem to a modern rational mind, and resting in the assurance, the promise, that Jesus has given as a result. is something that I think that I can hold on to, and I'm sure that you this morning can hold on to as well. Just a couple of comments to finish off. And I'd like to read verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishably, and we will be changed. This is the great Christian hope 
of eternal life. As I said at the start, death, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can join in with verses 54 and 55. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Reports such as the one I'm about to read appeared in newspapers and on websites around the world this week. Strung to a pole and staring down at the weapons pointed at their hearts, Andrew Chan and the other prisoners defiantly sang Amazing Grace in the moments before they were executed on an Indonesian prison island. After months of desperate legal and diplomatic appeals, Indonesia executed eight convicted drug traffickers in the early hours of the morning. Pastor Karina Di Vega described to the Sydney Morning Herald the extraordinary scenes of the prisoners. He said, they were praising their God. It was breathtaking. This was the first time I had witnessed someone so excited to meet their God. They sang one song after another, praising God like in a choir. After singing Amazing Grace, they moved on to Bless the Lord, O My Soul. The order to shoot was issued before they finished. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Let's just pray. Father, I pray that my words this morning will serve as a timely reminder about the importance of Jesus' resurrection to our faith. And that we will stand firm in the knowledge that he really did rise, having defeated death. Help us to fully understand the significance of this and the everlasting impact it can have in our lives. Help us to grab hold of this and all your other promises. To you be the glory. Great things you have done. Amen.